David, thanks for coming on the show. Um, so I don't want to, I'm not, I'm not going to big you up, but look, the reason we started this show is um, entirely your fault. So that's good to know. So look, I, the reason we're here is because when I started my company, Stakester, we had, I was left where I couldn't really find the answer to some really basic questions about like how to build pitch decks, what do investors care about, all just the basic stuff about running a startup. And then some of the things that you go through in that journey. And throughout that journey, I met some people. And the first one I met that really gave me some wisdom and lifted that veil on the VC world for me was, was you. And so because of that, I decided to launch a podcast. So I don't want to big you up, but there's a lot of pressure on you to to answer these questions well. I'm just saying that, just letting you know. Well, good luck to that. <laughs> so look. It's your show, so if I fuck up, that's your problem. That's my problem, yeah. exactly, right. Who cares if no one listens? Um, but thank you to people for listening. Um, so look, um, we'll start from the beginning. Imagine we're on a first date. You tell me your life story. Where did you do, where did you come from? What do you do? So usually in my first date, I don't talk about work. <laughs> but I haven't been dating for like 13 years. Um, so I was born in Romania. Uh, but uh, I grew up in Israel, so we immigrated when Romania was communist, and actually the Israeli government had to pay the Romanian government to allow us to leave. So if you're asking how much do I cost, about five thousand bucks. Whole different story. That's different do you podcast. still do you still cost as much? Uh, <laughs> my wife will say a lot less. <laughs> uh, but, but basically, uh, moved to Israel when I was about five. Grew up in Israel. Spend uh, some time in the Navy, radar guided missile defense system for the Naval. Were you were you were you on were you active? So yeah, you I was were active. So you did tours again. The problem is uh, within the Mediterranean, people don't understand that armies like any any big corporate. Ninety nine percent of the people don't combat, uh, and there was no war when I was there, so uh, I was good. But it was a lot of technical work and thinking about how to solve problems, and did that for about four years. Uh, bachelor in economics, master in law, and uh, a friend of mine approached me saying, hey, we're an IT firm. We want to build a software development department. And you have, I have experience in finance and in tech. Uh, how about you start coming on board and build it with us? And I was like, great. So me and another guy started. We were four people. And we basically started building products. When I say building, I was like taking any kind of information from the Ministry of Finance and saying, okay, this can be a product, a business process management or a lot of B2B and B2B2C products. And I ended up building, I would say when I left, it was 50 employees. And we ended up with about 15 different products. And were you building those, wait, to stop that, because obviously I'm a mega into the journey. Were you building solutions that were looking for a problem or did someone come to you with a problem and then you were like... So we were on the cusp and this is like, it's great because we were on the wave where... There were a huge regulation change in the Ministry of Finance regarding uh, the finance, the saving industry in Israel. So pension funds, provident funds, all kinds of uh, aspects, uh, including embedding security. So it was early 2000. So how do you create the and uh, make it available online? So stuff really basic yeah, that today yeah. is like you can sign up to the website. So we created the first website for some of the institutional uh, funds in Israel. Wow. Um, you don't know that old. Well, I am. <laughs> uh, but internet is not that old, so I'm good. Uh, but basically, I had a lot in thinking about how do you define you know, the first authentication. Yeah. yeah. So, but basically, just describe products. Uh, some of them were internal within the, the banks or provident funds, and some were external facing customers. Um, and somewhere through that process, I basically said, listen, I'm not the idea guy, but I'm the get shit done type of guy. Uh, and I came with a hypothesis that that means what VCs are doing is basically that. So let's help other founders do that. And I went on a journey that started with an MBA in Spain, working as an associate for a VC and an accelerator. But 2011 at the time wasn't the best year for them to raise another fund, financial mm. crisis. And I pivoted, did three year stints as an MA. Uh, we lived in, my wife and I lived in Germany. Uh, but it was cross-border in Europe, uh, an amazing experience. What kind of stuff were you doing? From, you know, what was it? Franklin Temple, the private equity, was looking to buy um, a huge or invest into a huge internet business in uh, Russia. 
Okay. So they needed somebody to do commercial due diligence, give an assessment and valuation. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, or a company, a startup was looking to raise uh, capital in games from China. So I opened the whole games division. Uh, so basically connected West Coast, uh, US and China because we had an office in China. Amazing. Uh, Quite diverse. Also, great, for, like, great for your VC training, right? Yeah. So the, the benefit of that for me was... There was experience in early stage, really like 20 million fund. That was the first fund that I worked with. Mm-hmm. You know, idea stage startups trying to build a, a, a product. And then I flipped to the end cycle where it's taking the portfolio companies from uh, uh, investors or corporates and saying, okay, they want to sell that now. Or, or VC that now, you know, we talked about failure. So it's only 20 million in revenue and now they need an exit. So we work with the founders and build a narrative and approach buyers. And so it was all both buy side and sell side aspects of the M&A. An amazing experience. I think being a consultant in general, it's very difficult if you like hands on, but it's one of the best ways to learn. Yeah, I bet. Uh, And then that was in in 2014, we moved here where I was deputy director at Waira, which is the early stage investment vehicle for Telefonica or O2. Is that, so is that a, um, is it a feeder? Is it a CVC? Are you basically just saying like, are they looking for companies that can sell to O2 customers? So Waira went through a lot within the operations, but at the time that I was there, it wasn't mandated to be if only fit with Telefonica or O2. Right. It was about... It should, if you, if possible, definitely, we can sell within the corporate and either service um, the company itself, O2 and, and Telefonica, and use the channels that we have to help the startup scale. But it was also about how do we bring innovation thinking into the corporate? So how do we expose our employees and we use them as mentors and we use them as uh, uh, different access points to the founders to be able to say the fact that they get exposed to it makes them better employees for the for the corporate. Sure. I find it really interesting. CVCs are quite interesting for me because uh, corporate venture capital, because I, I kind of, and I'm interested to see you, you, your view on this because companies will get approached by CVCs for investment. Okay. Yeah. And you're like, well, are they just looking for an option to buy me later? Am I going to have exclusivity issues? Uh, previously, I was a company we took money from uh, HSBC, and it actually yeah. worked out really well. That was really great for us. But at the time, you're thinking, like, what is their, like, why yeah. are they doing this? Why are they getting it? Is it because they want to invest in technology which they can use themselves and get it at a better rate? Like, why are they doing it? So, uh, again, every a big caveat is everything I'm going to talk about is my experience and some is outdated and it's my opinion. Sure. And opinions are like, and a nice euphemism is like toilets in a house. Everybody has at least one. <laughs> um, I think the main question you need to ask yourself is what is the corporate that is approaching me? What is their strategy? So you need to do your research. It's like talking with any other investor. And uh, most of it, I would say that CVCs that actually do it at scale don't come in early stage. They hardly do. Uh, and you don't want them to come in because if you only take one from one strategic or corporate investor, it usually is a hindrance to the scale within the industry because then everybody else will look and say, okay, so you work with HSBC, for example, why will any other bank work with you? Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of risk if they're a huge owner within the cap table. That being said, depends on the fit. It may be a great partnership, uh, but then I would say, make sure they're not the only one. So if you do come in on an early stage, have a syndicate. So three uh, corporates, all in the same industry, all invest in so- small tickets. I would say neither more than 5% ownership at early stage. Uh, because then you can play them off each other. Uh, and, you know, like with any other investor, there's, oh, this one added me value like this. What can you do? But the main thing is for most corporate uh, vehicles, half a million or a million ticket doesn't really count. Yeah. So if you want them, it's the same as an investor. You try to avoid party around and find somebody to lead because you want them and their thought experiences and network. And, you know, most VCs, you know, if Atomico or Index writes you a half a million check or, you know, uh, Andreessen, it's half a million check from Andreessen, but then 
how much time we'll get with the partner that wrote it. Um, Amen to that, big man. I 100% agree with you. It's nice to have that window dressing, but then it's not just about the window dressing. It's about getting yeah. that that exponential value that advisors bring to you. Yeah. Okay. But again, you may get that. I, I know startup that got an, a partner from a VC to invest half a million in, and they got a lot of time. So this is why there's never a cookie cutter advice that you can say. The yeah, only advice is that it depends and there's no standard advice. Well, I think this cookie cutter advice is do your due diligence yep, mm-hmm. on your investors as much as you, they do on you. So um, I like your story because like as this show is named, it's about backing yourself. Like you then, so you back yourself to say, well, actually, I reckon I can run a VC better than some other people and I'm going to do it on my own. Dude, the amount of ego you just put on me uh, within that I'm, sentence. I'm just, I didn't put any ego on you. I'm just trying to put pressure on you. <laughs> yeah, so I think there's, so yeah, I think there's, I can add value in different ways than what I see serviced in the ecosystem today. Yep. Uh, and we have a different approach. So talk to me about it. what is different about your approach. I don't want you to pitch ADV, but tell me about what was it that made you decide that you it needed to be done differently? So I think predominantly when we started ADV was what we want, uh, it's like the dichotomy that the, in the industry is not equal. Uh, the people that, so the, the people that actually make the industry venture capital are the entrepreneurs. It's not the investors. The investors just have the money. The people that make or break is the people that build the businesses. But it's not a a level playing field. And the idea behind ADV was how do we democratize access to capital and make sure that the founders don't spend a lot of time and, and effort into courting VCs, but get feedback fast. Even if it's a no, it's clear, uh, it's value adding. And then how do we streamline that process? Uh, so again, I won't go into pitching ADV. There's a lot. Actually, the website talks a lot about it. But the best thing and step number one is you don't need to know anyone from ADV to apply for ADV. And you no, know, we talked before. Yeah. Is it worth applying? I think you put it on Twitter, right? Yeah. So guaranteed feedback from ADV within two working days if you apply online for us. I don't want to be that guy who bigs you. I'm not big up enough. I don't want to do it anymore. We have to have an arm wrestle or something so I look stronger. But like the, um, and I win. Uh, the um, so, I um, I applied to ADV. Oh. I did. I did. It, I remember. So we and we right. you, you obviously hopefully you remember, and we went through the journey. But what was really fascinating about you? You were the only person who basically said to me like, "You got a cool thing here." I don't think you should be raising money. It wasn't yeah. I don't want to invest or anything like that. It was like I don't think you should raise money. I think you can do it without. And like yeah. that for me was like a real eye-opener of a moment for me for someone to have that honesty because we were a pretty investable business and we had some cool stuff and we still are but like for someone to have that that honesty was very different to the other VCs out there um, and that, but I can attest to what you said there I applied to ADV I did yeah. it through the uh, there's a like an aggregator system which sends them out and I was yeah. like and you, yeah and you got back to me in like seven seconds I barely pressed send it was amazing <laughs> And then we met for a coffee and I was like, shit, this is good. Yeah, that, that's amazing. So I really respect that. But but this goes back to, and you see a lot of good VCs or good investors in general understand that the most important thing that an entrepreneur has is their time. Because basically the moment you raise money, you build stuff, there's a limited amount of effort and time that you can put in building, improving the next stage before you become profitable or you raise money till yeah. you become the next, until you build the next stage. So time is the most important thing. And if you can get valuable uh, information to the founder while saying no and do it fast, it's a lot better than having five meetings and saying no. A hundred percent agree. So, but again, some of the the dynamics require that. So the question is, how do you build the process and how are you able to provide that value add feedback? It's interesting. You know, um, uh, CB Insights did this report about why businesses fail and the top three after they did their post-mortem like a thousand was like no market fit no market. Um, didn't make any money founders fell out yeah. and I'm like that's bollocks the, because what actually happened was the founders spent too much fucking time trying to raise money yeah they ended up spending like 20% on their business and that kind of shit there which is basically 101 for your business didn't get thought about it's so again I'm very careful because it's difficult when you have an idea and you put the time and effort, some people 
misunderstand what MVP is, for example. And they learn about, okay, so I need to write a business plan, go fundraise, and then build stuff after I persuade people. And it, it's still being taught in, in, in MBAs in business school that that's how you build a business. So you write a business plan, 40 page. Um, and when you go on Lean Startup, you say, what actually is the MVP? So what is the problem that you're trying to solve? What can indicate that you have a need that is, can be met in the seamless way? So the best example I always give is Dropbox build an MVP with a video. Yeah. They did a, I don't yeah. know if you remember, they yeah, posted yeah. it on Reddit. Of, this is how the service will look like when it's done. Yeah. And they got 75,000 subscribers within those two days. People saying, I want this. Now, the more, you know, the challenges is how difficult it is to build versus how do you evidence that demand? Because there's several ways to go to you become a scalable uh, startup. So the first thing is, do you actually need to code to prove that you can build something that's valuable? If you manage to get, you know, the Wizard of Oz approach, nobody needs to know what happens behind the curtain. There's a startup, um, I met the founder like seven, eight years ago, I don't remember, but their idea was, and again, that's about 10 years ago, was take pictures um, of um, of business cards, and then we send you a, VS, a VCF, you know, like a content file. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and like you just press send, and within a minute, you get something back. And they got, I think, got acquired by LinkedIn, if I'm not mistaken. And he was like, nobody knows it, but I had a team in India that got a picture, typed everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then sent you a VCF file well, that's as an SMS. What, um, Expensify did that yeah. where they were doing the photos of the receipts. We had a, guy, a couple of guys on the show switched. Um, they do a um, basically like a, you you pay them a subscription, and what they do is they make sure you get Moving cheapest you, bills. Yeah. yeah. So when they started out, they literally they had a, a sign up on their website, yeah. and they were doing it themselves. There was okay. no tech there. Um, Anthony Rose um, used to be the head of um, iPlayer, now runs yeah, Seed Legals. Seed Legals yeah. He used to put fake buttons yeah, yeah. on iPlayer. So you click on it, like, if enough people click on it, I'll build it. Yeah. I love and, that. And But here's the thing. That was with tech. The, the thing is, people are believing that they need to hire people to build a product before they actually see if there's a demand. I, I did something in that, and I genuinely believe that if someone says to you, and tell me if this is a turn off for you, if someone says... If you do this, then I will do that. That's a massive turnoff because you like you should already be doing it. I just want yeah. some money to make it better. Yes, however, it depends which industries. Oh, some if of them, well, if it's like deep tech or help, help med exactly. tech, like fuck. So, so yeah. there are some, so, and this is why it's like it's very difficult to generalize. Mm -hmm. But you should be able to evidence that you're willing to take a risk yeah. as a founder that me taking the monetary risk is not the biggest risk that you're going to say. Because what happens is we meet founders is like, if you're going to fund us, then I'm going to leave my cushy job and, and uh, take this risk. And I was like, okay, so what are your obligations? Do you have, you know, are you married? Do you have kids? Do you have mortgage? No, no, no. I'm getting paid a hundred uh, per year. Uh, but basically I save 60K. I like, so why should I put uh, like half a million in if you're not willing to take even the first step into the risk. So again, that being said, there's uh, the average founder is 37. Yes. So I'm young. <laughs> Win. Come on. But it's average. So there are people that, and I know I uh, just met an investor and he was like, yeah, I have two founders that are 60. Yes. It's I not, love that. So it really depends on your circumstances, yeah. how much you raise and what's the background if you have the financial stability. This is one of the reasons that you know, the whole aspect of, you know, the average white guy that is perceived as founders uh, is a privilege approach because most of the people have enough in terms of family that can sustain them for them to take the risk. Yeah. Um, yeah, we had essentially two points that you say that I um, back that up with. So, uh friend of ours, Kevin Montserrat, um, CEO of CV Ventures. Um, he says, and I'm going to massacre his accent here. He says, Thomas, it is not about the, uh, the MVP. Oh, it is about the MVV. <laughs> he says, it's about the minimum viable value yeah. you can deliver to your customer. What's the minimum you need to deliver that value? Not what's the minimum viable product you need. And I, I and, love yeah. that philosophy. No, I... I think it, it's the same if you actually drill down on what uh, the way 
Eric Ries talks about product. Yeah. He doesn't mean a physical product. It doesn't yeah. mean a software code. How come? It like exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it has to come across the emotional aspect, the engagement. There has to be something to be built. But you know, people MVP'd on WhatsApp, on Facebook, that there's a demand. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that you can do to evidence that. So it really depends about what your idea is and how you approach it. Yeah, I like that. So when you um say look, so you guys are super responsive, um, cool website, a lot of good stuff on there. What turns you on when it comes through? Like, so you as an investor, so something you get a message through. Obviously, for me, it's different because you, my face was on the front of the pitch deck, so you were like, "I'm in." But like, aside from that, what is it that makes you think I'm going to go and meet this these people for coffee? So again, I put the ADV process aside because if any one of ADV, so every time you apply, three people review the deck, not just one. So you get feedback. From oh, I saw that. And you send it on email. Yeah. You show the feedback. So, it's a blind review. Yeah. So you, it's up to you uh, if you, what you apply with. But the moment you apply, nobody knows what the other person writes. And the idea is anyone here can promote you forward. It's enough because the idea is how do you move away from, you know, a biased approach where me with my background looking at you, I may say, oh, that industry again, I hate that. Yeah. However, you bring somebody else from the team and they look at it and say, that's amazing. So is it, is, so it's not a black ball approach. It's not like one of you says no, it's all over. No. If it, one of you says yes, it's in. Exactly. And the same is about meeting coffee. I may, I don't remember. I may have said don't, not worth meeting. Don't, don't hurt my feelings. We met for coffee. And the, no, but, and the second time no, you came I to me for coffee and I have a theory and I talk about it a lot on the show. But I'm not but, sure if <laughs> I'm the guy that pressed the button worth meeting him. You did. I saw, I saw it was on the email. I've got this theory, let's just as a side note, that the um, the distance that a VC will travel to meet you is directly proportional to the likelihood they're going to invest. Yeah, probably. So if someone says, come to my office, it's high risk. If they say, I'll come to your office, you're like, I'm in. Yeah. I, I think on a very basic sales approach, yes. Told you. I knew it. <laughs> Finally, uh, you agree with me. So, well, yeah, so what is it? So when it comes to you, what, what is it that turns you on specifically? Like, what are the kind of things you see and you think, yeah, that that actually, not necessarily, but there are just general stuff that you think, yeah, that's cool. That's a good thing to put in there. So, so that's, a, I really hate that question because the way good. you asked it is, what's a good thing to put in there? It's like, uh, okay. I, I hate when founders come and say, what do you need to see to invest? All right, scrap that then. As How I, about this? How about this? Okay. What is an instant turnoff? Because there will be things, okay? I have people who email me to come on the show as guests and what they do is that it always says life coach. The second I see life coach on there, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if you pitch a deck with a life coach, that may be it. <laughs> uh, but... First of all, I think coaching is one of the best things that a founder should uh, do for themselves and their management team. But that's a different topic if you want. And not talk to life coaches, but right, have let, proper I mean, coaching. I'm talking about life coach on the show. Don't badger me about not liking life coach on the show. And it's, I'm sure they're great people. And if you're a life coach, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, it's just find the right coach for you that actually has experience. All right, let's move on, a, let's move on from okay, the coaching. Okay. We'll come back to it. Okay, um, what, what is a no-no? What, turn, what turns you off? Um, I think what turns me off is a lot of talk and nothing that has been done. No, we've been working on this uh, for three years. Yeah. Um, and then we haven't done anything. And the rationale for not doing it, the way they describe it, is not that it cannot be done. Is because we want investment first. Um, and again, this is what we talked about before. I think really low aspirations and low ambition. We're going to be, you know, we want to be the next Uber. And then you look at numbers and they're going to make 5 million in five years in revenue. Yeah. And it's like they talk the talk because they read it in an article, but they don't actually build a plan. Uh, or, you know, we're going to sell, yeah. sell in three years. I, know, I, here's I, an M&A and how we're going to, here are the companies that will buy us. That's really interesting. So I, I got turned down by one VC because I, he said to me, lovely guy, actually, I really like him. Love to get him on the show. He said... Tom, this is really cool. I really like it, but you haven't convinced me that this is a billion dollar opportunity. Yeah. <clears throat> and I was like, I don't think I want a billion dollar business. Excellent. Yeah, but, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was one of those wicked moments. Yeah. I was like, I don't want to make this up. But at the same time, it's a really fair question because like for him, yeah. it needed to be that for it to work out. Completely. And so you're saying like, that's the thing for you because people, what people forget is that you, you actually, yeah, I don't want to put words in your mouth because you said them beforehand, like, 
you're not there to innovate. Yeah. No, yeah. A, so what I said is that we're an asset manager. We're a financial investor. We invest in companies that will make shit tons of money because we manage other people's money and we need to give them, provide them a return. Yeah. A very high return. That's your MVP. Yeah. <laughs> MVP, so, yeah. Theoretically, what we need to do is look and see, do we believe that this company can be the outlier? Yeah. Now, one of the first thing I say to most founders I meet is, VC is the worst money that you can take into your business as a founder. What's that? Because you're selling your company. You're giving away huge chunks of your company. What's the typical amount? Just a number, because I mean, I, I, I like to be specific Again, with the audience. Again, stages. Right, okay. I'll tell you're, you like- You're pre-seed. No, we're seed and A's. Oh, so, okay, fine. All but right. That, so on average, on average, you sell every round about an average 20%. So earlier stage, you may go up to 30. Later stages, you may go down to 10. Uh, but on average, every round dilutes the company as a whole and all shareholders by an average of 20%. So if you did two rounds, 20%, that's 31.8. 3%, I think, aggregate value in terms of dilution. Yeah. It's a lot to give away. If you're, yeah. So if someone's putting money on day one, they're then going to get diluted by 31%. Yeah. But here's they... why you only are, you're only looking at one part of the equation. I mean, why should you raise VC money? You should raise VC money, A, when you don't need it, meaning you have a profitable company and you need to scale. And that's the best way for you to scale fast because there's an advantage for you to scale fast. It can create a unique network effect. It can make you a global dominated, dominating company in your industry. Um, now, again, if that's your aspiration, go for it. One of the best examples uh, about a company that grew and became a global dominating thing without any VC is Nike. Nike. If you, I mean, and again, I only know this because I read the, the book. Shoe Dog. Shoe Dog. Great read. Yeah. And if you actually look at it from an investor perspective, from year one, he doubled his revenue every year over 18 years till he IPO'd. Now, that's amazing. He got to 120 million when he IPO'd, and that's in 70s money. He IPO'd in 78, I think. Fuck. Uh, but, A, every year he almost got bankrupt because 90% of it was leverage. It was all debt. So... The best thing was there were banks that were able to Yeah, fund yeah. Uh, but it was an actual business. There were a revenue that were sell from the day one. And this is what brings me to the second point, which is you need angel or VC money when you're not really know what company you're building. You have a hypothesis. And this is where we talk about what people perceive startup is. Startup is not an SME. Startup is not, if it's a new pizza chain, it's not a startup, even if you're starting up. Startup is a hypothesis that this problem can be solved by this solution and can scale globally very fast. And what you're doing is buying with the capital the runway to test and prove stuff. Can you build it? Does it bring value? Will, is the value big enough for people to pay for it? Is the unique economic of the value or the, or the how much people pay for it sustainable over time? So it can be, you can break even per product, but can you make a global company from it? And then can you scale it globally? And usually that's the the, or the order, not always. Some startups actually, uh, can you build it? It's not that difficult. And can you scale it? It matters more. But it depends on the industry and, and the continent you're actually working on. But the main thing is people assume that it's a business. Where I know the product. I, no, as a startup, you have assumptions. And you're gathering data to prove those assumptions. And every VC will look at what you said is, what were the assumptions you thought were unique and you've proven? And what are the assumptions you have yet to prove? I love that. So from that perspective, you that's the only reason to raise. If you can build a good business. No, take WeWork, for example. Okay? Are you sorry, you're saying build a good business? Mm -hmm. Yeah. WeWork is the best real estate business in the last decade. It's a shitty tech company. Correct. Got you right. I'm glad you added the caveat. <laughs> but okay. here's the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, if you look at a real estate business, like, put aside all that, what happened is valuation that multiples of a tech company. Yeah. But 
the, the, there were a lot of challenges where all the benefits of being a tech company did not come into play. Nice. So there was no network effects. There were no data that reduced capital cost. Every time they expanded, you know, very basically, if you build a SaaS solution, once you have it, you can deploy on all, you know, in the cloud. Yeah. So the ability to improve the product or have more users is not the same capital requirement of investing uh, the initial capital. Well, the SaaS model rather than the retail model. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And we work at, it's a real estate business. Yeah. You need another building. Yeah. So the gross margin will always be the same, very yeah. low. Yep. Gross margin for software is 80 to 90%. Correct, yeah. Which that in, with a growth rate is what gets you 10 to 20x multiple on revenue. The average in real estate is between 0.5 multiple on revenue to 2x multiple on revenue. Yeah. That's how, and again, this is where people that evaluate companies say it's like the real estate industry, this is the average. Now you come and bring a great real estate business that's growing really fast, but the gross margins are still not tech. So again, it kind of cascaded into that. But it's a great business and it will take time to recover put, to recover yeah. and put on a track. Yeah. But from a real estate perspective? It's really fascinating. I like your attitude. So is it a couple of things? Oh, could you, you give me a lot to think about. In the current climate, marketing is hard. But do you know what isn't hard? Making sure you never miss an episode of your favourite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. One thing that I want to drill into there, and it's something that um, I think about with my business, so a bit of um, empathy there. You mentioned about 30% like angel seed, triple F round, whatever, 20%, 20%. Now, there's a lot of people who say, like VC say things like, you don't want to have a messy cap, cap table. table. And I'm yeah. like, I don't know what the fuck that means. Like, what does that mean, a messy cap table? If you have 30 angel investors. 30. Uh, 10, 15, depends. Right. So is it, is that, so that's why I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know, is, does it matter is it the percentage that they own that's the issue or the number of investors? And yes. why does it matter? So, so say, say, sorry, say, say you raise, yeah. say you value, you've got a, a startup tech company, you want to raise like 150K yeah. from uh, some angels. Okay. So what you do is. Don't. Never raise 150K. It's the worst decision you'll ever make. Nobody ever managed to build a seed round of 150K and actually deliver something within the time period to actually raise something else. Shit, hypothetical example for me. All right, okay, you raised 250. Raised half a million probably minimum with the prices in London uh, that suffice okay. for at least 18 months. Okay, and cool. that's on bare bones. All right, so solid. I have a huge rant on that. Don't make I, it. I, you gave it to me six months ago. Yeah. <laughs> you gave me it at the time when I said to you that before. Right, Hypothetical situation. I've got a business. I valued it at say like 2 million. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's all right. We'll talk about that in a minute. But say so 2 million, I raise half a million. Mm -hmm. But I raise that through, I'm shit at maths, um, 10, 50 Kers. Okay. Is that all right? Depends what the 10, 50 Kers are. Right. So if it's- This is what I'm interested in because yeah. there's a lot of people who will be like, so, so I'm a massive fan of Angel Investment Network. Yeah. I really love it. I think it's really great for startups to get them kickstarted yeah. and what they're going on. And, but those guys are in there. They're putting in like five, 10, up to four, 50 grand. Yeah. It's a massive amount of money from an angel who doesn't know you. Yeah. So you're going to get a lot of people on there. Yeah. And so like, when does it become messy? So 10 angels that nobody had of them is a founder of a tech startup, not a company, tech startup, tech is probably messy to start with. Yeah. Ten, 10 investors. That individually invest. And think about it like this. You need to have all of them, if you need anything to run as a, you need shareholder approval. You need people to sign stuff. You need to run through 10 people. If they're angels and this is not their business, they may be somewhere. I've seen deals almost die because an angel was in the chalet in Swiss uh, Alps and didn't have uh, an ability to, right. to sign. So, so on that, is th so that's, 
I get that. And I can see where that would be a problem, right? So, so, and again, if you start with 10 angel investors, what you describe a party round, that's how we call it because there's no lead. It can be good. A wonderfully patronizing VC term. Yeah. No, <laughs> VCs do party rounds as well. Yeah, yeah. It's not that, but it's the, the idea is there's nobody takes ownership on the deal from the investor side. Okay. So the founder has to party, bring everybody yeah. into the room, organize everything, and there's no lead. Yep. Uh, which can be very challenging, but it also means there's no ownership from one investor say, this is mine. Okay, yeah, I see that. So the challenge in that, and again, it maybe if it's, you know, Nicholas Dernstrom, Tavit, like people that build, that's a great indication that founders believe in you, founders that build big businesses, and they know what it means to be a shareholder, so they'll sign stuff and focus on getting mm-hmm, shit done. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not necessarily a messy cap table. It all depends. And maybe a messy cap table may be, um, you know, contradicting uh, investors that fight all the time. Yeah. Okay. So, so what- there's a, a, the nuances. Can it help operate the business better or worse? Does it impact from that perspective? A messy cap table is if the founders in the very early stage don't own the majority in the company and they're not, and within, and you, when you do predictions as an investor, I call, um, no, within two rounds, there'll be each uh, 5%. Uh, And the idea of how we as investors see it is the founders, especially in the first five years of the business, are the ones that drive it forward and are the biggest potential to make the vision happen. So if within three to four years, the founders end up individually owning five, 6%, they become employees. And their mindset and the company becomes owned by investors. And the likelihood, I'm not saying these companies don't succeed. The likelihood of that company to succeed reduces. It's all about risk mitigation. So what you need to remember is it's not about do I like you and do I invest in your company? I have your company and have five others that we are, the investment committee Mm. are looking at. So here's the level of risk within your company. Shitty cap table, great team. Great team, excellent cap table. So, Simple as that. Yeah, it's about where do you allocate the money and where do you mitigate the risk? So look, okay. And now, that being said, I invested in a company where the founder, upon my investment, owns 6%. Wow. Not, not because of my investment. But yeah, I get it, yeah. So, so that, this is like for every rule, there's a caveat. Yeah. Because it depends at core how... We, how much we believe in the opportunity and the team to be uh, that is able to deliver that, and that founder is mission driven, and they will continue as a, as a as investors we believe that we'll continue increasing their option pool, and we can do that through the option pool. That's not a problem. Yeah, yeah. But they as founders are super dedicated. That that's their life vision. Okay, so like that's interesting. So like I I I don't like to give a problem without finding out a solution to it. So say you've got a situation where you've got like I don't know. Twenty guys. Create put, a nominee. And so have could, one guy. Yes, yeah, so that's what you do. So yeah, or do you have a shareholder agreement, which means you vote if you have over two and a half percent or something like that? Yeah, you can limit based on ownership and so on, uh, and so on. Yeah, but there's a level uh, that even minority shareholders have to sign or do stuff procedural sometimes. Yeah, even to that sure. Level. Yeah. So so you create a nominee. Create a nominee, and again, Cedars does it well. Crowdcube, I think, does it well as well. What about like okay? And do all of the do all of the shareholders have to agree to the nominee, um, or can I or can you, if you're the major shareholder, nominate the nominee? So yeah, I mean, it depends who organizes the round, and if there's yeah, a sure. syndicate that comes in and says we invest through a nominee, yeah, 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 yeah. but if you come and say, and again, it depends on the investors and so on. But here's the thing: there's no standard. You do the right deal for you as a business. So if you're able to build and say, and you suddenly see there's great 20 people, but it's like half a percent each, and it's going to be a nightmare to manage, suggest, okay, guys, ladies, here's a nominee structure. We'd like all of you to move under that. You still own your shares, but the idea is there's one person taking the decision and voting if needed or signing in, in uh, all of your names. 
Yeah, it's cool. I get that. Okay, cool. but again, that's one shitty cap a cap table. That is yeah, I know. I'm just, it's just fascinating because I think a lot of people get into that situation because yeah. you know you start a company and they're like, because you raise 150k uh, and then you're so patronising. <laughs> you, you stop saying stop saying you can only wait times respect. Some yeah. people, what? Okay, how about this? What if you've got like five founders that are all devs and also, and they've got an amazing so, sales guy and and also they can afford to go without taking any money for 18 months? You're right. I'm just There's saying. There's always an exception. Uh, but if you're asking me for my advice, yeah. I would say statistically over the last 10 years I've been in this industry, people that raise 150K as seed and giving away 20 to 30% of their business are positioning themselves to fail because yeah. 150K, most people are not dev. UK is not dev-led teams. It's usually people looking for technical co-founders, not in abundance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you end up what I call death by raising. You end up raising 150, 250, 450, oh, yeah, 750, and then you're out of the captive. And as a CEO, like your job is basically like a full-time sales guy. You're just selling the business constantly. Yeah. And you, and this is why everything about how you value, and when you said, you gave in your example, I value my company at two and I raise half a million. I would say that's an inverse. What you need to do is understand what you want to build. What's the vision for your company in 10 years from now? What does that mean for you? How big do you want? Be? And this is like, it's exactly, is it going to be a billion dollar revenue company or $10 million revenue company? Either is okay. It's what do you want to build and over what period of time? The moment you have that, how many users do you have? What's the revenue? Understand why your KPI is in 2030 and do a reverse engineering saying, if that's where I want to be in 2030, how do I see in 28, 26, 24, 22. And you have a more long-term perspective of what you're planning to build. And then when you have the numbers of 22, build a plan to actually get from today to end of 22. And that's how much you need to raise. Now, for that, you're going to sell on average 20%, maybe 30%. That is the implied valuation. At early stage... It doesn't work like I define my valuation to be. It's a byproduct. And again, this is my opinion. It's a byproduct of how much you need to raise. Because VCs, will, at least professional good ones that think about scale, will not come and say, okay, now you're raising 3 million, then I'm going to take 50% of your company or 75 because you valued it at 4 million. No, they say, listen, my business model works. I need to own 15% of the stage. And if it's a 3.5 million round, I'm, I can put 2 million in. That's really fascinating because I like, I guess, valuations is something that comes up all the fucking time. Like I am, um, I had an interesting experience. Like, you know, we valued our business at two. Um, previous company, we valued it like a hundred million at our, a hundred million at our second round, series B. And I don't really understand how those numbers came up. It's like the fair value model. It's like, well, if I say that I'm worth two million, someone buys shares of that value, then it's worth that. That's, that's basic. Yeah. commerce, right? But you're saying you do it the other way around and you're like, which I kind of like, because look, I don't like the discounted cash flow model because like I can just make shit up. So this CF discounted cash flow is, it's a later state. So when I was M&A, yeah. this CF was the thing. Of course. Because you got some evidence, but what if you're a startup, you got no evidence. I've got exactly. any customers. So, listen, I, <laughs> I got an early stage deal like I think four or five years ago. Well, we saw a startup. We said, okay, we're going Are they to doing well, by the way? No. Ah! <laughs> um, and they're not. They didn't actually take off the ground. But we said, hey, okay, here's our offer to invest. Yeah. Um, out of a round of, uh, at that time, they were raising 750 I believe. Um, and I was like, okay, talk to me, you know, how much you're worth. And they brought an advisor that did a DCF that showed that their company is basically worth $20 million. And that's before product, before anything, because in two years from now, they're going to make shit tons of money. And then that 10 million is going to grow to 150 million within four years. I need to meet that guy because he sounds like an amazing guy. So <laughs> let me tell you that the best fiction stories are written in Excel. Not I tell you what, they are. any other thing. I tell this story all the time. I went to this one guy uh, when I was going through, I, I told you this story, I remember. I was going to say it was, but he said to me, he said, like, um, when we were going through the process, I got to the final stage yeah. of the investment and I'm sat there on the investment committee and this guy says to me, right, what's your, um, what's your customer acquisition cost? And I was like, oh my God, what a fucking stupid question. He was like, what? 
And I was like, how the fuck am I supposed to know what that is? I haven't got any customers. And his partner turns to me and goes, well, it's a good question. I said, I'll tell you what, what do you want me to do with that piece of information? What are you going to do with that? Mm. Tell me the answer you want and I'll just, give me two seconds, I'll change my spreadsheet. And he was like, well, no, but I mean, surely you've thought about it. Yeah, I have. Yeah, what's the answer? I'll tell you what, it's seven. Is that the right answer? <laughs> I assume that here's the Excel. This is my assumptions. It's so but annoying. Like, but like, that's the problem. Then you start like, it, it's fiction. Like, you, but, here, but here's the thing why I still must see an Excel. Because you've got to think about it. Exactly. It yeah. will force you. And what I'm going to do is, mm. you know, I'll, I'll look at the top numbers, but I'm going to drill into the assumptions. Okay, so you think you're going to convert 30% of them to actually active users? The average in the industry is 0.2. Why the fuck will you do 300x better yeah. than anyone else? Yeah. Talk to me about that. Yeah. And this is why the best thing and why you should build a model and you should build a, a mm -hmm. plan. And we want that is it translates your thinking into an, a mutual language we both understand, which is numbers. Yeah. And we can critique the well, shit of it. Not me, because I don't understand numbers, but I get what you're saying. Yeah, but it's like- it's I know a, what you mean, yeah. yeah. And it's one of those things where it's like, I think it's really great. I have a theory, and we actually have a lot of people who say it on the show, that the first thing you should do when you have an idea for a company, don't go and design a logo, think of a fucking company name or anything, write a pitch deck. Because it gets you in the mindset of like, here's the problem, here's the solution. But then the next bit is like, what's your business model and your market? So I'll tell the way I would recommend doing that is a bit different. Before you write a pitch deck, build a model. And this is not an operating plan, not a budget, a model of the potential of scale. You are intimidating people by saying the word model because not a lot of people know what that means. So, so, so let's so simplify basically, that. Basically, you're going to be an, you know, you're going to sell uh, into... No, you're going to build an app that does something for kids 15 to 25, uh, to 20, okay? Whatever, mm. help them with uh, tutors, okay? 15 to 20, right? At the, Are we making a business right now? This is what we're doing. Make we're, making, up a business. we're making one. Um, so my first question is how big can it be? So what you need to do is actually calculate how many kids are between the ages of 15 to 20, have a smartphone, uh, how many of them are iPhones versus Android, Um how many of them actually need tutors? Make assumptions. How many of them will need? How are you planning to get there? And just build all that, those assumptions into an Excel and say, okay, so this is where I start. How do I get to the first hundred? And how much will I charge them? Just build all of that one after the other. And then, okay, if I manage to get in 10 years, 100% of the market, how big can this be if I charge them, I don't know, one pound per month? Taking the fact that every year there's group that leaves and becomes 21 and the group that comes in. So there's a layer, you know, there's a startup that focuses on ed tech for kids two to six uh, called Lingumi. Their calculation is there's about 300 million kids in the world that are within that bracket overall and that are going to come in the next, I think they'll calculate 10 years. Um, so again, there's, you need to understand how big is your market. And mm -hmm. if you're going to charge them, what's the potential revenue? And again, it may be millions, it may be billions. Or if you think about selling to businesses. Okay, so I'm thinking the you know, HR platform for SMEs. Okay, so what is the number of, when you talk SMEs from two people to 500 people or 1,000 people sometimes? How many companies like that are in existence within this? How many of them will you actually target? What's the value? And the moment you start modeling in your head and within Excel, <laughs> you start seeing what type of business can you build? How big can it be? Uh, and again, there's different ways, but then you're going to say, okay, I have this. What's my unit economics? So what am I selling? Well, how much will it cost me? And do I see it changing over the next 10 years? Meaning, do I see a value in network effects that will reduce cost of sale? Do that thinking before you start building. Yeah, I like that. And that leads to the fact of what's the vision and all that, but it co connects together. And again, you probably, if you have an idea, you probably can articulate the problem solution. But um, as I mentioned before, we're in the business of making money. So if you want to raise, you need to see what type of business you're building. Yeah, I love that. And also I like your candidate because you get a lot of people who are just like, yeah, we're just about changing the world and finding the best tech. Fuck off. You're trying to deliver for your customers. So, if your, your customers are investors and you've got to make them money. So here's the, the, this is why I'm a bit of contrarian. I'm a venture capitalist, but I'm predominantly attracted to mission-driven businesses. So I don't see it co as contradictory. And this is the, the, the funny thing. Like, 
the right mission type of business should be global scalable because it adds value, uh, but there's an alignment of impact and revenue. It, it, most people think it's either or. If you build the business correctly, the impact is embedded in the revenue engine. So the bigger you are, the bigger the impact. So it's not either or. One of the best startups we invested in and I work with, uh, even from Waira, is WeFarm. WeFarm addresses 500 million small-scale farmers. And it adds value in a daily basis to those farmers by creating a community that collaborates and building tools for them to do what they do best. So people double their yield. You know what it means for a farmer in Africa or Asia to double the annual yield? It's like you just doubled your salary, your yeah, yeah. household income. Yeah. Um, and you create tools that allow them to trade faster and easier. You empower their buying power. And its impact, its mission. And if you manage to monetize 500 million farmers across the world that address the early stage commodities trade by producing maize, corn, mm -hmm. coffee, all of that, and you become their voice, it's an amazing solution that creates both and aligns both aspects. No, I like that. I can see that. I think, and also like, yeah, I was, yeah I, it makes perfect sense. That alignment is going to make you more successful. Right. Part cool. of the show where... Question. I now ask you some questions from my email and DMs on Twitter. Uh, if you want to send a question in, it is at backyourselfpod. That's a lie. It's at backyourselfshow <laughs> on Twitter. Um, okay, we right. That out. Yeah, sorry. Okay, right. So uh, here we go. Ah, here's a good one. Yeah, we'll go with that. Um, advisors. Do I pay them? Do I give them equity? Oh. Why should I have an advisor? Is there any value to having an advisor? They haven't, I've added those questions. They just said, advisors, should I pay them or should I give them equity? And is there value in having yeah. them? So the person that needs to answer if is their value is you. Right. And I wouldn't, so the way I would approach it is only work with advisors that you think will add value to you. Uh, the main thing is quantify that value. The biggest scam I see in the industry is people that say, let me introduce you to people and you'll pay me a big retainer and give me 10% of your business for introductions. Um, and they call themselves advisors. So the way I recommend working with advisors is start by having them as a consultant by saying, okay, what do you see aligned? What do we see that we can work together that you can drive the business forward? Have a project for three months see how much time they input you input and have they reached the goal and then talk about equity if there's an alignment on that i think people use equity because it's cheap now it's easier to say from my position because if you don't have money to pay them then you'll use equity and i'm not yeah, I get that. you know um oversimplifying it but the idea is too many people want to be advisors not many good advisors out there so the question is, what do you want the advisor to do? Make sure that you actually drive. It's most advisors you see is basically just introductions to VC or investors. That is a structure that is, you know, if you really want one, most VCs don't talk to them because they say if the founders can, and again, a bit of ego, but, and like posh approach, but if the founders can reach us, then you no, know, that's, they're not hustlers. Yeah. Uh, I think something in that. Okay. But if you talk about actual advisors that can help your business, make sure there's objective, quantifiable, even if possible, numerical goals that they can evidence that they work for you. Because you, what you don't want to do is pay for their time if there's no results. The more results-driven compensation you're able to build, the better it is. And if you, as a VC, like if you see someone who comes to you and they've got like three or four advisors on their board. So, uh, my friend, you asked me what sometimes deter me. Uh, a slide of 10 advisors where I know three of them and they haven't heard about the startup ever. People put advisors as if uh, that's the thing that will give you credibility. They, they build credibility by association and they think if I put this person as an advisor, then that will make you invest. No. What will make me invest is who you are, the narrative mm. and what you've built and can this be... 
Can you convince sure. me this can be a good company? Advisors can be, give a bit of credibility if they're actually advisors. Get it. If you do a phone call once every six months, it's not an advisor. Got it. There has to be time commitment and goal-oriented advice. And it should be evidence in your success, right? Yeah. It should be like, I brought this person on and then look how it's changed. Yeah. You know, like that. Okay, it's a good answer. <laughs> All right, next. Um, that's a shit question. Um, <laughs> ah, what if, okay. Um... I don't want to criticize them. Their grammar's terrible. So we'll go again. Um, a lot of abbreviations. If you had, wh which industry do you wish you saw more pictures from? So we're, as ADV, we're agnostic. So whatever. I think predominantly one of the most exciting industries that I don't see a lot of is femtech. Uh, so products and startups addressing women. Um, I'm a big uh, feminist and I work a lot on diversity, but I think one of the, I put all that aside, there's 51% of the global population is women. Mm. And there's, most of the products are built by men without, even if you think about how you build product and talk about users, you know, nobody regards how women perceive stuff and products that, you know, you talk about kids 25 to uh, uh, kids 15 to 20 perceive different things than uh, people or grown-ups 30 to 35, but nobody splits between men and women. There's a huge opportunity for femtech. It doesn't have to be usually today the, the first steps are mainly around uh, wellness and health, but there's a lot of things that are just women perceive differently and it's okay and it's a huge market. Uh, so... I think the, in the last three years, there has been about $2 billion, uh, globally invested in femtech, and that's just hardly anything. There's a lot more opportunity. Again, this is from a greedy investor that sees a market that nobody's tapping while women control most of the spending in the house, but they also spend on themselves a lot more in wellness and health, but also across everything. So there's a huge opportunity there. Um I think there's a lot that is interesting for me. Uh, my passion is community-driven startups. And community is basically the way I see it in the 21st century, the thing that will differentiate you. Brand is step number one, but it's not defensible and it's basically one way. It's I believe in your values, then I'm willing to spend my money with you. Uh, community, there's an inherent aspect that is a lot more embedded in becoming the place where other people interact around the subject. And there's a lot more uh, passive and active engagement uh, that creates a stronger network effect. Um, the best example for a community uh, that's scaled globally is GitHub. Yeah, amazing um, story. Yeah. So there's, no, it's not necessarily when, when, I, when we, I say community, a lot of people use that term not a lot of people understand what it means. You know, we work to use community, but there was no network effects or value in one member in New York coming on board to a member in London. Yeah. So there needs to be a step number one in any kind of network effects by increasing the community, something that adds value to each on a passive layer. But there's also aspect of uh, active interactions as community members that add value, not related to use of or buying products for me. Uh, but again, that's my my no, passion no. is about that type of things. Uh, but if you look at the development over the history, technology enables us as individuals to find our own community. In the past, community had to be restrained by physical. So if you were the oddball that liked D&D, &D, okay, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, uh, and were a complete geek, unless you... You definitely were because you call it D&D. &D. Yeah. Like, Don't try to hide it. Dude, I'm like a whole new level of geek. <laughs> Uh, unless you went to a geeky high school or you had a geeky club, you never could meet those people. Mm -hmm. um, today, like you can meet anybody. I know people that play as gamers have a group of friends they never physically met, but they're best friends and they spend hours a week together. And you can find your own community around the world and that creates a different opportunity. Things that would never be in a business, you know, because it's only 1% of the population in any population. Now, the moment you think about 7 billion people and 1% of 7 billion, 
it's a huge market. Mm. So there's a huge layer, you know, at the beginning, technology was just about creating access to information. Uh, and the second layer was about creating values and brand and people communicating with them. Now the way to differentiate is build a community that values a topic and be the place where they congregate. I love that. I love that a lot. Really good answer. All right, last one of the questions here. That uh, will get you everywhere. Okay. Not investment, but yeah, ha, that's not true. It will actually. Um, you joke. Um, you make an investor feel like a rock star. He's gonna like you or she. Okay. Right. So here's a good one. Um, last one though from this one. What is essential reading for a founder? Um. So reading slash podcasts. Well, this podcast, so don't you don't need to recommend another one, so that's fine. The Back Stuff Show, done. Now talk uh, about books. Can I recommend other podcasts? Nope, talk no? about books. Okay. <laughs> so, depends what you're building, but the hard things about hard things. Uh, ben Horowitz. Uh, ben Horowitz, hard things about hard things. Yeah. Okay. Um, Not to be confused for Anti Horowitz, the <laughs> fiction writer. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, hooked, how to build a habit for Oh, my products. God. Ayal. Um, Near Ayal. Oh, my God. Yeah. What a book. The thing, uh, oh my God, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, his new book, by the way, as a side question, Indistractable, right. is like his remedy to the industry because Hooked is all about how you embed the product in your uh, user's day-to-day -day life. Yep. And Indistractable is more about how do you actually manage to live in a world where everybody's distracted. Oh, fine. Nice. Yeah, nice. Uh, so both are good, but Hooked is definitely if you build a product. Yep. Um... That's enough. That's good. All right. I, th there's a lot more. Depends on what type. Uh, but yeah. I think but they're great. Okay. So last there right now, you need brevity here. You have 30 seconds to answer these two questions okay. even one, one at a time. Okay. Because it's post a quote time. Question one. What is the best habit a founder can have? Best habit the founder can have uh, is making smart decisions fast. Love that. Good post to quote. The next one, what is the biggest mistake you see founders make? Biggest mistake founders make? Not hiring uh, people that are better than them. Fuck, I love that quote. Oh, winner. Um, Dave, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you so much. It's been really great. Um, thanks, thanks for, for coming on. Me.